Welcome to Is This Working, a podcast about the messy parts of work with me, Anna Codrarado. And me, Tiffany Philippou. Today we're talking about working through a crisis. Do you want more tools to improve your working life? Then join Is This Working on Patreon, the community platform for supporting creators like us. Support us on Patreon and you'll get perks, including a weekly reading list from us packed with things that will make your working life better. Find us at patreon.com slash is this working show. We're joined today on the show by Kate Sevilla, who's an author, journalist and consultant who has experienced her fair share of challenging work situations throughout her career. Kate has led editorial teams for some of the world's largest media and tech companies, including Google and Microsoft. And she's also worked at media startups, including BuzzFeed UK and The Pool. Kate was the editor-in-chief of The Pool, a women's website, when it closed very suddenly and very publicly. She's now writing her first book, How to Work Without Losing Your Mind, which is coming out in January 21. The book draws on all the experiences she's had over her career and offers super practical advice for dealing with difficult work problems and career dilemmas. We had a really super honest chat with Kate, who told us what it was like to be at the helm of a company as it was going under and what she learned from that experience. She also gave us some really practical tips for dealing with things like job loss and career setbacks. There's so much brilliant advice in the show and I'm excited to share it with you all. Quick note though, before we begin, pretty please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much to those who've left us a review this week. Uh, Thanks to Ebony, thanks to Golden1530, and thank you to Dee. We really appreciate it. Helps other people find us. Thank you so much. On with the show. Hello, Kate. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We're very excited to have you here um, because we love talking about the messy parts of work on this podcast and I feel like we're going to have a really great messy conversation today. I don't know why, I can just feel it in my bones. You can sense it. (laughs) You can sense Um, the mess. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Why don't we just jump in and have you tell us a bit about your work story. So how you got to where you are today. Yeah. Um, I mean, gosh, it's been a, it's been a weird ride. Um, so yeah, so I kind of started out, um, with blogging. So, um, I didn't go to university. Um, I instead dropped out of uh, the community college that I was going to and, um, started a career at Starbucks and I was a coffee master and a, uh, assistant store manager. And I thought that that was very much going to be my life. And, um, you know, I got paid well, which was good. Um, but then I was like, oh, 
uh, my soul is dying. And so I went to therapy and they, my therapist kind of helped me work through the fact that, no, you don't just want to run a Starbucks for the rest of your life. Uh, you want to do other things. And what I really wanted to do uh, was write. Um, and so I ended up, which is a completely other story, I ended up moving to London when I was 20 years old. Um, and I started a blog. Um, and then through that blog, I then got my first sort of proper writing gig, which was a um, Shiny Media, which is, I, I think they might still exist in some capacity, um, but it was like the UK's first blog publishing company. Um, so I worked there and gained a lot of really valuable experience. And then I launched my own online magazine called Bitch Buzz. Um, and I did that for about four and a half years. And then I think this was around like 2013 or something. And I was like, you know, I would really like to have some money because um, I basically didn't really make a heck of a lot of that uh, when I was kind of working for myself. And so I, I from then on, I had a very um, varied career and kind of editorial. So I worked at Microsoft and then I worked at BuzzFeed. I was one of the, the founding members of um, BuzzFeed UK, um, which is a wonderful job. And I learned a lot there. Um, and then I did a lot of weird things after that. I worked at a, uh, a startup that was founded by the ex-Top Gear presenters, so Jeremy Clarkson, Richard Hammond, and James May. And I worked there as like director of content operations for this startup called Drive Tribe. Um, and then I worked at Google for a while. Um, and then I was at the pool as editor-in-chief there, uh, just in time for it to uh, collapse. And uh, that was a mess. Speaking of mess, that was a very big mess. Um, and now I'm uh, I'm freelance and do a lot of freelance writing. I've written a book and um, do a lot of editorial consulting. So uh, always an editorial, always online, um, but working kind of an online editorial in lots of different capacities at media companies and tech companies. It's a very um, windy career path I think you have, which I think is kind of very common to most people who are working in the media right now. I mean, I think it's the same. It's this, very similar for me. It's very similar for Tiffany. Um, how do you kind of actually feel about that? How do you kind of feel about what a career trajectory looks like today, particularly for people who work in industries like the media or kind of creative spaces more generally? Yeah, I think now, unfortunately, we don't really have that luxury of just, okay, you train to do this thing, and then you're going to, you know, join this one company, and then you're going to work there for five to 10 years and slowly kind of work you up the ladder, and then maybe you'll continue to stay there. I think um, if you're working in the media these days, or I think in any sort of creative capacity or creative industry, you really have to uh, diversify and have a lot of different skills, and you can't really unfortunately get comfortable. You kind of always have to be aware of what's the next thing. Um, I think at some point, you know, five, 10 years ago, we were all like, okay, we're going to pivot to video. And then we all need to learn about video and we become different like experts in different kind of niches. And it depends on, you know, what the trend is at the time that you kind of need to train yourself up in and be more aware of. Um, so yeah, I think you really kind of do have to lend your hand to many different skills and learn a lot of different things and not necessarily things you uh, like, but sometimes the thing that you're kind of good at is where the money is, um, which, you know, is, is good for your bank account and maybe not so good for your uh, mental health a lot of the times. 
Well, it's funny because I feel that I really go from two extremes of really wholeheartedly embracing the entrepreneurial side of needing to pivot and needing to adapt and kind of the agility and everything that comes with working for yourself and being freelance. But then on the other hand, and maybe this is just because um, I'm being caught at a particularly sort of a particular moment in how I'm feeling about my work right now, but it also is a massive recipe for burnout and it can, and it can really feel like, um, wouldn't it just be, I would just like some, just a little bit of security. Not, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not kind of, I don't, I don't mean this to sound sort of, oh, I'm feel as though I am entitled to kind of a certain type of career or certain salary or anything like that. But it's just having absolutely zero security. It's just very, very tiring and it's exhausting. Terrifying. Yeah. yeah. It's extremely stressful. And I think it's, it's one of the things that I personally have struggled with because I've worked for really big companies. I was at MSN, I was at Microsoft. Um, that was like my first kind of proper kind of job when I stopped kind of freelancing and working for myself for a long time. And I thought, right, this is it. You know, this is the kind of thing that I'm going to do from now on. And then, you know, I realized that when you're working, even if it's like a tech focused company that has a media aspect to it, there's always that risk. There's always that, um, unsecure aspect of what you think is actually security. And it's been, it's been a really difficult thing that I've kind of had to grapple with myself is that, you know, working someplace like Google, well, once you're in, you're meant to stay, right? You're meant to be there for a long time and there's all these opportunities and they have amazing benefits. And I just couldn't stay. I just couldn't make that. It just did not work for me. And that's been one of the it's, and it's, it, was, it is a very privileged thing, but it's a, also a really, I think, difficult thing to kind of grapple with. Oh, this sort of nine to five big corporation climbing the ladder thing is not for me and it doesn't work for my mental health. It doesn't work for my lifestyle and what it is that I want to do. And it, you know, the way that structures are kind of set up, it, it, you end up feeling that there's something wrong with you because you can't hang with that sort of uh, lifestyle and, and that kind of work. But, um, you know, it's making a lot of people very sick, actually. So it's, uh, you know, it's difficult. Yeah, when you talk about um, both of you talking about burnout, I know that my burnout is in a bad place when I start wishing I had a full time job. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Just but looking then, at LinkedIn yeah. at all the jobs that you could potentially yeah, like <laughs> opening those emails, being like, "So and so is looking for a comms manager," and I'm like, "That sounds nice." Um, <laughs> But um, I um, but then what I think, which you've just said, is like the funny thing is right now, if anything, full time work is actually more risky than being mm. your own self employed, and obviously you've worked in where well, we all have actually in industries that um have experienced a lot of job clo- uh, job losses or website closures. What for people who are experiencing this for the first time because they're not coming from traditionally turbulent turbulent industries um can you tell us what it's like working in a turbulent industry yeah it you really do kind of get a a false sense of security so i think obviously it depends on kind of where you're working and like what the situation is but i very much have been um and got caught up in the whole um like large startup 
like large you know media startup um, kind of bubble where you join a company and it's probably US based and they have a lot of money and they're not scaling properly and they throw cash and headcount at every single problem and they get a lot of good press and they become like the subject of a lot of um, industry chat. And so it feels like you, you're at this exciting place and they give you free pizza and beanbags to sit on and swag to wear. And you're like a family. You're not a company. You're a family. And you get very caught up in this whole like self-hype situation, completely forgetting the sort of fragility of the industry and what it is that you actually are doing. And yes, it's exciting to be able to have um, free donuts and free breakfast and all of the kind of perks of working at a funky, cool startup. But that's just bleeding money. (laughs) So I think you can get really kind of caught up in an injection of funding and of, of what it feels like having cash flow and it feels safe because, well, if it, you know, they wouldn't be spending all this money. They wouldn't be moving into this big office. They wouldn't be hiring all these people if it wasn't safe. Um, but companies very much do that. Um, so I think for me, I've just kind of experienced uh, at least three different media startups that were all very different, but the result, um, oh, actually four, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think, I'm like, how many times have I lost my job working at uh, media startups? Um, it's four. Uh, yeah, it's it's scary and it's easy to get lulled into that sol- that false sense of security. Yeah, we, um, we, everyone has lost jobs in this conversation. (laughs) Are we in the double digits between all of us? (laughs) Uh, Maybe actually, or kind of getting there, getting there. Also, at least for me, it was always the specter of, uh, job loss always loomed large. And then until eventually I did actually get made redundant. Um, I managed, I I kind of prided myself on dodging quite a lot of redundancies until I eventually, um, until eventually happened to me. It'll get you. Um, Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, so I did actually want to talk a bit about job loss because um, there are so many of them happening at the moment. We have all experienced them. And I wanted to ask you about your time when you worked at The Pool, which was a women's website, a public, or not, an online publication, which uh, closed in 2019, I believe it was. was yeah, it 20? yeah, yeah. In January or yeah. thereabouts. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you were the editor-in-chief at the time. Um, so I wanted to ask a bit about what that experience was like, because, um, you did end up losing your job as well, but I, we've spoken, we have spoken about what it's like to experience a job loss, but I really want to hear what it's like from the person who was in the driving seat at the time when other people were losing their jobs. So can we hear a bit about what all of that was like? Yeah. So it was, um, really awful and uh, extremely painful. Um, And I think it's one thing when you are a manager or in a senior leadership position and you have to make, um, you know, even one redundancy or to fire somebody is is really upsetting. Um, But to be in a position where you're telling multiple people or groups of people or entire departments of people that they're losing their jobs is another thing. And then it's even worse when it's literally the entire company um, and it's you losing your job. It's your boss losing their job. And, uh, you know, all of the, the people who report into you um, 
are losing their jobs as well. Um, and the extra kind of layer that was even worse at the pool is that it was not just me. It wasn't just my staff. It wasn't just, um, you know, some of the, the, the consulting CEO at the time who was also losing her job, but it was all of the suppliers. It was all of the freelancers. It was the cleaner for the building that we worked in. It was the milkman. It was every single person that was connected to that company lost so much money. Um, and some people, you know, lost 50 pounds. Some people lost in the thousands. Um, I think there are some of, I mean, if you lose your salary for a few months, that's awful. And then it's, I think it's even worse when you are um, freelance because you've done the work, you're waiting the 30 days and then it doesn't show up ever. Um, so in short, when it comes to being that person who's letting people know that they're losing their jobs, it's really terrible. It's awful. You wouldn't, that's like the worst, absolute worst case scenario. Um, but I think what with the pool, what was so uh, unique and uniquely terrible about it was that we didn't really know what was going on. And it's very difficult when you're in a leadership position, as I'm sure a lot of uh, managers um, and directors are learning now when you're managing in a crisis, that's kind of when your true colors show. Um, and you kind of learn something about yourself as a leader. So you can choose to bury your head in the sand or kind of tow whatever company line you're being told by the higher ups. You know, you don't have any information. So you kind of don't communicate anything, um, which I know a lot of people have kind of experienced um, in the last few months. Uh, and so my my decision was, you know, I don't have enough information, but I'm not going to hide that fact from uh, my team. So I think the approach that I took um, was very much, I'm just going to be as honest as I possibly can with my staff. Um, they saw me cry. They saw me angry. They saw me upset. They kind of understood, I think, as best they could and as best as I could. They knew what I knew. And it is your job as a manager to shield your team. But I think that there's a time to shield your team and there's a time to kind of, you know, completely remove the shield so they know every bit of information um, that you know pretty much as it happens. Um, so anything we found out, um, we kind of tried to collate as much information as we possibly could and then relay that to the team as, as quickly as possible. Um, yeah, over, overall, it's uh, I, I chose transparency and honesty because that kind of was, I felt, the only option when you have people's livelihoods um, on the line and people are stressed and anxious and depressed and afraid because they don't know what's happening with their main source of income. And for a lot of our freelancers, we were their main source of income. Um, yeah, it was, it was terrible and really upsetting. And, you know, I, I know that it, it still hurts a lot of people to this day. I saw the other day for some reason, I think it was either hacked or something, but the, the pool account started tweeting again. And I saw a lot of angry responses. <laughs> <laughs> thrown uh, that one tweet's way. Um, so yeah, it was, I feel like I'm rambling now, but it was, it was, it was, um, it was really tough. It was really, really tough. And we, and we, you know, we still don't know. I mean, obviously I ran out of money and they lied about it for a long time, but uh, we still don't know exactly what happened. We don't know. Like there's just so much that we just kind of still don't even know. So. I think that kind of when you 
don't actually know what's happening. That is the thing that makes things feel really difficult. And it's the thing that also makes it hard to move on from as well. I mean, I know that I have, um, I didn't actually end up even losing the job um, in the end, but I know that I've been in situations where I've been put at risk of redundancy and I still didn't really fully understand what was going on. And there was a lot of, there wasn't transparency um, and it wasn't very clear what was happening. Um, And still, even now to this day, it must be pushing 10 years since that happened. I still sometimes think about those things and I still kind of wonder and I still have a lot of feelings and emotions kind of you know especially more negative ones as well um and it really kind of can be quite difficult to move on from these when these sorts of things happen in your career um what kind of um you mentioned that a crisis leading through a crisis is when uh a manager really kind of learns a lot about themselves what would you say what are some of the hard lessons that you learned from from the from that experience yeah, I think, I think from, you know, I didn't, I, I feel like as a, as a manager, as a leader, um, I don't have any regrets with the way that I, I handled myself. I know that I did the absolute best that I could. Um, and I, and I feel, and I hope that, uh, my staff at the time knew that. I think, um, from that, I kind of just learned the sort of overall benefits of choosing to be honest, choosing to be transparent, choosing to speak up and to put yourself in the line of fire. Um, there was nobody else that was going to stand up and, and talk on my behalf or on behalf of the company. It was down to me. And I feel like I stepped up and I did that the very best I could. But from a employee perspective, from a joining a startup perspective, from kind of a, a business savvy perspective and what to kind of look for when you join a company, I've learned a heck of a lot. <laughs> I think from my experience working um, at various startups, uh, media startups, editorial startups in the last, um, well, more than 10 years now, um, I know which questions to ask and what things to look for. Um, and I, I never would have, that never would have occurred to me before. I remember, I think shortly after I was, uh, after what happened with the pool happened, I was on a radio show and the the host was like, wasn't that a bit naive for you to have joined like that? And I was like, well, at the time, no, because at the time you don't go, do you know, I really think I should suss out this company on a company's house and see when the last time they filed was, or I should be checking how many uh, directors they've had in the last five years. That just would have never occurred to me. And I don't think that's naive. I don't think that's being naive. I think that's most people wouldn't think to do that. <laughs> but now I tell people, I'm like, and I, I have a whole chapter about this in my book, but it's like, these are the things that you should be looking for and kind of researching when you join a company. So I think for me, I have I have learned a lot about what to look for and what questions to ask, not just about like the health of the company itself, but about the ways that I like to work, that I need to work, that are going to make it worth me spending all of this time um, being involved with the company um, because that's what it comes down to, right? It's you're choosing to work with this company and lend your skills in exchange for money. And you need to make damn sure that the way that they work and the way that they expect you to work is actually in line with what you need. Yeah, you mentioned your book there, um, which already that sounds like it's going to be extremely helpful for people to learn uh, or to learn from what you've learned along the way with all your experience. Can you tell us a little bit about 
um, yeah, yeah, your books. Um, so it's called How to Work Without Losing Your Mind. Um, and it comes out in, in January 2021. I think we're still waiting on an exact date. Um, but yeah, so it's basically, it's about everything that we've been talking about. It's very much about the kind of messy parts of work. Um, it's about dealing with um, you know, difficult bosses and having difficult conversations, dealing with envy and competitiveness um, between colleagues, um, and kind of very much focuses on, you know, work is extremely messed up. And these are the things that are in your control. And then these are the things that are completely out of control. So that's, it's kind of in line with what I mean. It is in line with what I've kind of had to learn about. Okay, what are the things that I can work on? What are the things that I can do in difficult situations to try to make my working experience better and what things are just kind of completely out of my control and it's not worth kind of wasting my breath trying to fix something that is completely unfixable. Um, yeah. And so I talk a lot about, you know, how to, how to deal with, uh, job loss and how to recover from, from job loss, what to look for when you're joining a, a new company and kind of overall, the kind of question is how do we, continue to succeed and achieve in our careers without consistently burning out over and over again. I'm really excited for the book to come out, um, not least because you and I had a really great conversation when you were writing the book yeah. about um, going freelance and um, how on the one hand it can feel really empowering, especially as a woman to work for yourself, but how um, for lots of women who go freelance and myself included, it's usually as, as a result of being pushed out of the work workforce, either um, through a redundancy or lots of women end up going freelance because um, when they come back from maternity leave, um, again, either a kind of more subtle pushing out from, from a job or in some cases people actually kind of being made redundant flat out. Um, and so I'm just really excited about all of these more nuanced and basically very messy conversations that up until now, I just don't think have really been happening. And, and exactly to your point, this business of knowing how to actually research a company, these are things that are not taught to us. We're, we put work on this pedestal and we put companies on these pedestals and have this idea that there is a dream job out there that we should all be pursuing and shouldn't we be so lucky to be to be getting work, particularly if we work in the creative industries yeah. and and we're not encouraged to actually do our due diligence. So I think your book is going to just be um, such a uh, necessary Bible that so many of us need in our lives. So I can't wait for it to come out. Um, Thank you very much. Um, I want to know what does, you know, especially having written the book and sort of really interrogated these parts of, um, of work, has that kind of changed your own relationship with work or maybe kind of what, um, what kind of like a, what sort of working quote unquote well looks like? Um, yeah. how, how has that kind of changed? Yeah, it's been really interesting. So I, um, I started, I started writing the book, uh, around this time last year. Um, so when I was, when I started it and when I was going through the whole pitching process and trying to get a deal, it was you know, just after everything with the pool had happened. And before I was at the pool, I was at Google and I had a really, really tough situation there as well. So I was pretty broken when it came from uh, a being an employee perspective. So I think in writing it, I obviously, 
I processed a lot of that kind of trauma and, and pain, and I was able to get a new perspective on it. And I had a lot of, uh, and, and in the interviews that I did for this book, I, people shared a lot of really painful stories with me. Um, and it really, I think, helped kind of give me this overall picture that, okay, one, it's not just me. <laughs> there are lots of people who are feeling this way and have had lots of really traumatic experiences at work. Um, and I, you know, I finished writing it. I think it was like January 4th or something and I turned it in and then I started a new contract um, only a few days later and so I had all these fresh ideas of how to work and the ways that I should be feeling and approaching my own work and the conversations I should be having with people and I was so scared I was so scared to then go to work and I knew that the people that I would be working with they would know about my book um, at the time it was meant to come out when I was still going to be um, working um, at this company. So I've been at Refinery29. I'm on contract since like January. So I was really afraid that I was going to forget everything that I had written and just kind of go back into my own old patterns and ways of working and that they would be like, how has this person written a book on working? She's terrible. <laughs> so I really had to kind of, uh, it helped keep me accountable and it helped make sure that if I was unhappy about something, that I was having a difficult conversation. Um, it really helped me understand my own kind of anxiety at work and the kind of stories that I kind of tell myself when people respond a certain way to an email or people say something on Slack in a certain way and I, I read it a certain way. And I've kind of had to learn to kind of unlearn my old habits and my own ways of interpreting things because, and I, and I, I write about this a lot. I think, um, a big problem that we have, like you were saying that people don't teach us how to research a company or the questions to ask in an interview to really kind of suss out whether or not we want to work there. Um, we're also not taught to ask for things. We're not taught to speak up at work and go, Hey, I actually need uh, you know, uh, I need different hours, or I need you to maybe communicate with me in this way, or I learn better this way. And when you talk to me like this, I shut down, or actually I need to take uh, a longer, you know, break on Thursdays because that's when I need to go to therapy. Um, we're not taught and it's not conditioned within us. And we don't really see examples at work of other women, other people asking quite plainly for what they need in order to do their job at their very best ability. So I really kind of had to challenge myself and uh, try to live up to the advice that I have written about in this book. I really identify with that pressure that we put on ourselves because we are people who, so obviously through this podcast, we have the privilege of speaking to all these wonderful thinkers about how to work mm. and we've done lots of reading and we talk about it and I talk about the benefits of rest and blah, blah, blah. And then next thing I know, it's like late at night and I'm working and I'm feeling overwhelmed mm -hmm. and I have not eaten enough and blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly I'm like, not only do I feel that that makes me feel bad, but I feel that added layer of guilt. Like I should, I should be practicing what I preach all the time. I should have reached this like working nirvana. Why am I back <laughs> with my old, slightly addictive work habits? Why and am I crying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, it's so, so I really understand when you said that emotionally, cause it's, it, it really adds an extra layer of, um, difficulty. I think it does. It's, um, 
I mean, we're just, we're human, right? And we all know, we all, it's so much easier to kind of think like logically and go, well, I know that I shouldn't be feeling this way because of X, Y, and Z, but I still feel that way. So I think the biggest thing is awareness. It's understanding your own needs and what it is that you need to do in order to take care of yourself at work. Um, the things that you need to ask for, making sure that you eat, making sure that you, uh, you knowing the hours that you're most productive, all of those things. It's, you know, learning it is the first step, being able to always implement it. I don't think anyone can always implement it. Um, I think one of, one of my favorite kind of quotes, and I included this in the book, is I was at a talk um, it sounds so wanky. I was at a talk uh, with Elizabeth Gilbert, and she was talking about how her number one kind of priority is managing her mental health. That's her her main job. And every day she wakes up in the morning, and the very first thing she thinks to herself is, "Oh fuck!" And <laughs> I really identify with that. I think it's 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 one thing to kind of know. I know that I should be doing this. I, I'm aware that I should be. This is the checklist of things that I need to do every day to take care of myself. But I think um, being able to actually implement it every single day and to be able to regulate your emotions and your energy and everything perfectly every single day. I mean, that's that's impossible, right? <laughs> I, I would love to think that there's a work nirvana, but it's I don't I don't think it necessarily exists. I think it's kind of a you know how many days out of of a week can I achieve? Uh, you know, a more balanced work life? And how do I feel at the end of the week? I think that's probably an easier way to measure it because it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah, it's, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think Liz Gilbert, they would be hanging out in my work nirvana if I was to. <laughs> yeah, she would probably be there. <laughs> I'd probably be hanging with her. But I am, um, the other thing I wanted to pick up on that you mentioned was around, not only are we not taught to ask things, but we're also not taught how to digitally communicate. And I imagine with more people working from home, this is an even bigger problem. And particularly with regards to working with offices, something I found, I actually felt, I actually feel a bit anxious thinking about this and talking about it. But for me, a huge source of anxiety, and I'm sure this is so familiar to so many people, is interpreting emails or Slack messages that people have sent. What is their tone? What are they saying? And the amount of time and energy that is wasted trying to decipher that and that fear and all that that comes with it is so draining. And I, and I think when we're also not really taught, yeah, we're just not taught how to use these tools and how to communicate in this way. And I think it causes a lot of pain for people and is a waste of our mental energy. Absolutely. And I think the other kind of um, uncomfortable layer to that is a lot of companies are international and you work with a lot of different people from a lot of different cultures and English is not always their first language. A lot of these folks speak four languages. <laughs> and so the we were, I was just actually just talking about this in a work meeting earlier today. Um, different languages translate to English differently and some are more blunt than others. Some cultures are more similar to that of, uh, you know, American or British and others are not. And so when you translate everything into English, things can come across really blunt or really direct or just different. And 
that's another layer that I think people don't really want to talk about because it can come across as being racist or xenophobic. And it's, it's not, it's literally a fact. It's just kind of like, we're working with so many different people from so many different backgrounds and, and cultures and languages, and we're all communicating in written English and every company has its own sort of norm. Some people want to um, chat in very short sentences on Gchat. Some people want to write paragraphs on Slack. Some companies are very email focused. And you're not kind of, you have to learn as you go at every single company or every single client that you're working with. And it's really difficult. And it's really difficult to know, um, okay, English is not this first person, this this person's first language. Um, so I might have to kind of read between the lines a bit or just maybe phone them and ask them what they meant. It's hard. It's so difficult. And I think so many people are not used to communicating predominantly, as you said, on Slack or on email um, and are so used to just being able to pop around the corner and go, hey, Sarah, what did you mean? Or, hey, can we grab a five? I'm a bit confused about this. And even then, communication is so bad. Even when we have the ability to kind of walk 10 feet over to somebody's desk and just kind of ask them for a five-minute chat because you're confused about something or you don't understand what they meant or you think that there was a crossed wire somewhere. And having to exclusively have those discussions on Slack, you're right, it's completely exhausting. Um, I think I think we might have to just get more comfortable with with pulling people up on things or asking for more clarification because um, even that itself can appear defensive or um, uh, confrontational, but I don't think it is. I think that if we got more comfortable asking people what they actually meant or, hey, this, I, this didn't come across quite well. Like I've, I've had to do that. I've had to do the, uh, like a few weeks ago, just be like, Hey, I'm not sure if you realized, but this, you said this, and it kind of came across like you were telling me how to do my job. And I'm sure that's not what you meant, but I just needed to flag that it came across this way. And that made me sweat so much and it made me really um, anxious, but I kind of had to do it because I couldn't just let it slide, you know, and I needed to know what it was that they actually meant and what they were actually trying to communicate. I can so relate to this and when you talk about cultural and international differences because I've worked with so many different nationalities and also Anna and I both share the fact that um, all our parents are foreign so we mm. grew up so even though we grew up in England yeah um, we are a bit more direct I think and not I think I know and the way we talk to each other I think English people um, might struggle with and I and I think about when I've worked I've had a lot of problems when I was working in more English environments where I don't under I wouldn't understand passive aggressiveness or I don't have much <laughs> patience for it. Like, why are you saying sorry to me? That's annoying. Um, and I got feedback being like, you're too direct. And I was like, okay, cool. I need to like be less direct, but I don't understand how to do that. And then I went to live in America and, um, I just felt so much more relaxed. I could be myself. Like no one was saying you're too direct. Um, and then it, it, I just felt more, and everyone's like, no, you're really friendly. What are you talking about? Like, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then now I work with Anna where we similarly, and also we've got that added layer where we trust that we have our best interests at heart. And I always presume she's doing the best because, uh, we're friends first and foremost. So there's that, there's that 
those two things really help with our communication and just make it so much, it's just not stressful working together in the way that I used to find it really stressful working in particularly more kind of Englishy environments. Yeah, I think probably at the beginning of my career, I probably just didn't have, because I'd never worked in an office before when I moved here. So I had worked in ice cream shops and cafes. And then I moved here, completely different country, completely different culture, really. Now I know that. Before I thought we were like so similar. It's just like very similar. And it's not <laughs> like, like it is in the grand scheme of things. But when you really kind of drill down into things, they're different. They're very different. And Oh, sorry, I should say I'm from California. I lived there until I was 20. Um, and yeah, I, I can only imagine how I probably came across in the first office that I worked in. Um, and what I think is actually interesting is that I have somehow, with the exception of, I think, Drive Tribe and The Pool, every other company I've worked for has been uh, based in the States. And I always kind of have thought about that, like, how... That's interesting because a lot of then the higher up people that are interviewing me are also American. So is our communication different to the other candidates that they've that they've been speaking to? I don't know. I just think it's been curious that throughout my my career, I've predominantly worked for for U.S. based companies. Let's take a quick break and then we're going to chat about some practical tips for navigating the modern workplace. Stay tuned. Do you want more tools to improve your working life? Then join Is This Working on Patreon, the community platform for supporting creators like us. Support us on Patreon and you'll get perks, including a weekly reading list from us packed with things that will make your working life better. Find us at patreon.com forward slash is this working show. Let's talk some practical tips. Um, we don't want to kind of share all of the secret sauce of the book, but let's get a bit practical and talk about some tips for um, managing some situations that I think a lot of people might be facing right now. So we talked a bit about job losses. What is your number one tip for someone who has uh, just experienced a job loss right now? To give yourself time to recover, I think it's it's such a scary time and it's such an upsetting time um, when you lose your job and your kind of first instinct is to uh, get on LinkedIn, email every person that you know, and just try to find a job. Um, and I think particularly like with what happened at the pool, we didn't get like uh, redundancy pay or anything like that. It just was like, you have no income. And so what are you going to do now? So I think the reality for a lot of folks when they lose their job is, well, they need another one. Um, but if you even just have like one week's grace period that you can give yourself to kind of grieve and to process and to kind of look after yourself, that is going to do you a world of good um, rather than kind of immediately jumping into 
the next the next thing or putting pressure on yourself to find the next thing. Um, you're not going to be able to do much of anything. I think if, unless you give yourself time, like you mentioned rest earlier, um, giving yourself time to process and to grieve a bit and to rage a bit, um, is I think is really, really important. And I think that that's probably my, my biggest tip for recovering, um, from a job loss is to actually give yourself time to recover. And do you have any tips for bouncing back from failure? Yeah, I think once you give yourself time to uh, be angry and to be sad and to kind of feel your feelings and to sit with your emotions for a while, um, is then you have to go, okay, enough. (laughs) And you have to kind of pull yourself up out of it and think about what it is, focus on what it is that you want. You have to balance your needs and your wants, right? So you know how much money, or maybe you need to figure out how much money you actually need every month to survive. And who do you know? What are your options? Coming up with a game plan. I think being able to plan and put your energy into planning, even when you don't want to, even when you feel like you don't have the energy or the know-how to be able to do that, being able to kind of focus your energy into plan and what it is that you want next is is really important. And for me, that's the kind of only way that I can ever kind of snap back. I wish I could say that it was meditation and yoga. That certainly helps, but that's never going to pull me up out of a, of a crappy situation. So, And I think talking about it is really useful as well. So, you know, step one, recover. Step two, talk to people, get your feelings out. And step three, get your shit together and make a plan. Yeah. There's a list is always involved at some point along so many the journey. <laughs> um, so you mentioned earlier about kind of how we're not taught to ask for the things that we need, particularly in work situations. How can we actually start to make those sorts of asks for example if we um you know maybe there are people now who are being encouraged to go back to the office and maybe they don't want to or maybe they do need some extra time for personal reasons be that to go to therapy or whatever it might be how can people make those steps to asking for what they need yeah i think the first thing that i think it's something that i've really really struggled with is to actually identify what it is that i want and what it is that I need. So it's not, oh, my boss is trying to, you know, ruin my life and they're just a terrible person. It's okay, but what do I actually need from them? And what do I need them to do differently? And how is that going to help me kind of achieve what it is that I need in my job? Um, so it's like with you, for example, if you're getting pressured to go back into the office and start commuting again, um, and you're not ready to do that for whatever reason, um, whether it's physical health, mental health, or you're just worried about, you know, catching a deadly virus, fair enough, um, come up with, I guess, again, a plan. It's what it was it that you actually want. Okay, is it that you want to just commute two days a week? That's what you would be comfortable with and do the rest of the time remote. Is it that you only want to go in once a month? What is it that you actually want? Um, that's the kind of most important thing because I think a lot of us don't actually kind of allow ourselves the kind of headspace to really kind of answer what it what is it that I need? Not thinking about what's possible not thinking about what your boss's answer is going to be, not thinking about what HR is going to tell you. What is it that you actually need? What would be the best case scenario for you? And maybe what are some options around that? And then you just have to ask. (laughs) 
Um, I mean, I was in a situation where I thought I was going to have to go to a photo shoot um, a couple of months ago, um, which now seems completely laughable and insane. But I thought that I was going to have to do that. And the plan was that I was going to have to do that. And I was really anxious. And I was like, I'm not like, I'm just not doing that. Like, there's no way that I'm going to even get in a cab and go to this like small studio and sit in a room with other people and do this thing. So I just had to say, like, I don't know what the expectations around this are or what the kind of plan is. But for me personally, I am not able to do X, Y, and Z. I can help remotely or whatever. So I think very much ask yourself what it is that you want. Come up with some options around that. And then and then you have to communicate those needs um, to your boss. Um, yeah, which is scary and hard. But I think a lot of it is you just have to, you have to know what it is that you actually want. And you can't let the expectations of other people kind of cloud that. It's great advice for all communication and relationships, I'd say. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, working it out sounds good. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kate. I'm so excited for your book. I think it's going to come out at such an important time for people. And I really appreciate your openness and all the brilliant wisdom you've shared with us today. And um, I think it's going to be really valued by people. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much, Kate. This has been such a brilliant chat and really appreciate all of the sharing about all of these messy bits of work and how we can learn and grow from them. You are listening to Is This Working? Hosted by Anna Girado and Tiffany Philippou. Produced by Chris Bannister. Continue the conversation with us over on Twitter at isthisworking underscore show.